want to invite you guys to turn with me to, the, to this glorious passage, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Romans 28, sorry, Romans 8, 28 to 39. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and hallelujah. This is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for all of your word, but this passage in particular is such a comfort and such a joy. Thank you for the great assurance that we can have, that we are to have of your love for us. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in these moments as we consider what this means and how it relates to the truth that we are saved by grace alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are at week four of four of our Reformation 22 series as we have attempted to look at the doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone, a little more in depth. Uh, in the first week of this series, we looked at what makes grace, grace. And we talked about how it is true that grace is unmerited favor, but it's unmerited favor with a context. Namely, the unmerited favor comes Precisely to people who deserve the opposite of what they're getting. That we were by nature objects of God's wrath and 
in his grace, he gives us something completely other than what we deserve. In week two, we looked at the scandalous love of God for us and how the doctrine of sola gratia underscores and helps us understand how it is that God would love us so lavishly, given that we ourselves are unworthy of it. And last week, we spoke about the principle and truth that sola gratia is the gospel. And we looked at the fact that the gospel is all about what God has done for us. We didn't have any part in what God did for us because it is by grace alone. Now in today's passage, as we look at verse 4, I'm wanting to drill home a final point in this, in this series. And that is this. In life, you're going to have tops, you're going to have ups and downs, you're going to have topsy-turvy moments. You are going to feel uncertain about whether or not you really are secure. And I want you to understand that the great doctrine of sola gratia provides for us the basis and the foundation, the very ground on which we can have assurance. It is not contingent upon you and your strivings, nor your failings. It is contingent and dependent upon the work of God. And thus, we are secure. This passage begins, our passage today begins, with verse 28 of chapter 8. And we have this precious truth that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, do we know that? He's not saying that in this life or right now, every circumstance you have makes sense to you or is enjoyable, enjoyed by you. What he's saying is in the final analysis, we can be sure that when all the threads of your existence are brought together, you will see that King Jesus has been governing all of creation for his glory and your good. You got to understand that King Jesus rules, King Jesus reigns, and every single thing that happens, happens for the good of his people. That may seem preposterous now, but the wondrous an amazing truth is that when we are in the vantage point of eternity, we will look and we will reflect upon all that has transpired and we will see this great principle in action that all things have worked together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And how do we know this? Well, verse 29 and 30, verses 29 and 30 are what... Puritan uh, theologian William Perkins called the golden chain of salvation because there's this series of connected links that are connected to each other in such a way that it's unbroken and unbreakable. How do we know that all things work together for good? Because those whom God foreknew, that is those whom God set his love and affection on from eternity past, those whom he foreknew, they are the ones who he predestined. 
No one added or excluded from that group. The ones that God loved from eternity, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, that group. No one added, no one subtracted. That group is the ones he called. And called in this verse refers to the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit that, that results in our being born again. Okay, those whom he called that group, he justified. That group, no more, no less. And those whom he justified, th- this is, this is the, 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 the mind-blowing part. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. Well, that's true, but that's not here. Those whom he justified, he glorified. One of the things that I love about Paul and the New Testament is that it is so, our future is so secure, so certain that it can actually be spoken of as a past tense happened already event. No more No less. Those who are glorified are those who were justified, are those who were called, are those who were predestined, are those who were loved. What a glorious truth. All of this by grace alone. But then we have the rest of the chapter. And it's an important moment to remember that the Reformation did not have it, or the Reformation was not birthed in a dispassionate, airy, ivory tower uh, library where, where disinterested or, or just aloof, emotionally detached, aloof theologians and biblical scholars reflected on the Bible. No. The Reformation was not principally about propositions. The Reformation was birthed of incredible existential angst. The Reformation is a real rubber-meets-the-road moment in history where one man had tried everything that the church had prescribed And inside, all he felt was the condemnation of God. And so there was incredible angst. And that experience was not shared by Luther alone. But the gospel as it poured forth into Luther's mind, into his soul, Luther experienced something that countless of others have experienced, the the awesome wonder of a weight removed from their shoulders, of seeing God and themselves and this world in a whole new light. And that, brothers and sisters, is the Christian life. It's the effect of becoming one of God's sons and daughters. But in this world, as as we're going to sing in a few moments, this world is filled with troubles. It's filled with trials. It's filled with tribulations. 
And, and you've got to understand, as you experience life, there are forces animated by a force that seek your demise. And if they cannot destroy you, they will do everything within their power to derail you. It is true that God is sovereign, but it's also true that to some extent, the devil has dominion. And as Peter was told by the Lord Jesus himself, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Wow. Understand that in this life, your ability to enjoy the blessings and benefits of God is going to come as you engage in the spiritual warfare of warding off and fighting the evil one, of speaking back to even your own mind. The enemy is real and the enemy wants you miserable. The enemy does not want you rejoicing in your salvation. So what happens here then in these verses of the rest of the chapter is Paul anticipates four, four barbed attacks that come in the form of statements with a response. Notice here in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? He's turning practical, but then look, In the rest of these four questions, the interrogative becomes a personal pronoun, who? Who will be against us? Who will condemn us? Who? Who will bring charges against us? Who will separate us? Who? Revelation tells us who the great accuser of the brethren is, and the who is who? The devil. But brothers and sisters, I testify to you that the devil's work is made easy by the fact that our own consciences speak against us. We have three enemies in this world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our flesh, the fallen nature that is the old man, seeks to tear us down just as much as the devil does. So he projects his influence taking advantage of our fallen nature. But there are four questions that Paul, that Paul brings up. First, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against you if God is for you? Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? Is God for you? And that's, that's the devil's first attack. That's the attack that will come your way. Stated propositionally, God is not on your side. That's that's been the attack since day one. Well, not literally day one. Since he first engaged humans. Look at this awesome tree here that God made. Did he really 
Really say you can't? What kind of a good and gracious God would put something out of your reach that is so amazing? God doesn't really have your best interests at heart. And that is something that plagues us all throughout our lives. I have heard so many people when, when a, a protracted period of bad stuff happens or, or maybe just one big gigantic bad thing, God's out to destroy me. God's against me. Have you ever wondered that? Has that thought snuck into your brain almost, almost like it's being whispered in your ear from over your shoulder that, that after a protracted season, maybe, maybe God is judging you. Maybe this is the proof that God is not your friend, that God's your enemy. It happens. How do we, how do we respond to that? Well, by responding, by looking at the first part, if God is for us, well, is God for you? Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, you cannot look at your circumstances as evidence that God is for you or against you, okay? We all go through good seasons. We all go through bad seasons. It is is part of life. The book of Hebrew tells you that you are destined, it has been, you are ordained to die. That means your health is going to decline. Things are going to get bad for you probably physically. That does not mean God doesn't love you. Jesus says in this world you will have trouble. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. But conversely, Your relative affluence, comfort, and ease does not mean that God has blessed you. The devil dispenses riches. The Bible is clear that oftentimes the people who sleep the most comfort are the most most, uh, secure at night are the most wicked. Sometimes riches, wealth, and comfort are the anesthesia that the devil dispenses to placate hearts and to to lull them into passivity. No, you do not base your evidence of whether or not God is on your side on the basis of how you're doing. The Bible tells us the evidence of whether or not God is on our side. And what does the Bible say? In verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. You want to know the evidence that God is for you? He was willing to part with his son. He was willing to inflict all of his wrath against your sins on his perfect, sinless son. That is the evidence that God is for you. That is evidence that is immutable. And set. So when the devil says God is not on your side, or your guilty, haunted conscience says that God is not on my side, you remember Christ crucified. Because God is most definitely on your side. The second thing that your conscience 
as a tool of Satan, or maybe Satan himself will say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge? That's what Paul asked. Who? What charge can can Satan bring? In other words, Satan is going to tell you, you're guilty. Be ashamed of yourself. The devil is the accuser of God's people. Okay? And the devil, we all know, will not have to lie or exaggerate a single thing about what we've done. The devil will be like the prosecuting attorney pointing out each and every one of our flaws. Those times where we knowingly, with intent and premeditation, acted wickedly. Those times where it just slipped out. Those times where we planned, those times where we vented, those times where we intentionally added coals to the fire and stoked it, whatever the devil keeps a record. And he will say, look at what you've done. You think that you're one of God's, remember this. I know many of you are plagued by the memories of past sins. And they are large in your eyes. They loom large. And you think that, that, that maybe this one was too big or, or maybe not too big, but maybe that is the, how could, if I really was born again, how could I have done that? What does Paul say? It is God who justifies. In other words, you have been declared righteous. You have been declared not guilty. You have been declared a law keeper by none other than the creator, sustainer, ruler, governor of all things. So banish, banish those memories that loom large in your mind. And that second one bleeds over quickly to the third. Who is to condemn? In other words, who is to pronounce sentence? We all know we feel it in our bones that there is a day of reckoning. That the judgment day cometh and each one will receive in accordance with what he or she has done. We feel it. The concept of judgment is in every culture. We know it to be true. Who is to condemn? Just just so you see, the devil is the great accuser, but he does not have power to condemn. And you think, oh, I'm going to get paid back for what I've done. I'm going to get it in spades. And you remember, you remember when that, when, that, when that attack comes, that satisfaction has already been made. Look, look at what Paul says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. For you, that's the implied part, 
for you. The holy blood of none other than the second person of the Trinity died already for you. Paying satisfaction. And then it says, and check this out, and what's more, he was also raised. Remember, his resurrection is why we can speak of his death. His resurrection is proof positive that his death was sufficient and satisfactory and accepted. So it's great that he died. That he was raised elevates the value of his death to what we know of it as. And then he didn't just come back alive. He ascended into heaven and has now seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. In other words, Jesus has still got you on his mind. How then is there condemnation? There is not one thing you can do to add to what Christ has done for you. No amount of feeling guilty, no amount of self-flagellation by raking yourself over the coals, no, no penance, nothing. Jesus has done it. So remember the words, remember well the words of Martin Luther when he reflected on this. And many of you know these words. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I freely admit that I deserve death and hell. But what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I will be. That's the response. And then lie number four, or the attack number four, is who will separate us from the love of God? And indeed, the devil would have you be separated from the love of God. His lie, will, his attack will essentially come in this form. Given what you have done, given who you are, given the way things go for you, God's gonna stop loving you. And to this, Paul's response is amazing. His response here is no more to make propositional statement responses. Paul knows that question, that attack, in light of everything that's come before, is absurd. So he responds to this question by asking even more inferential questions. So sort of a Socratic method. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God the Father's love, God the Son's love, God the Spirit's love for you is immutable. And all of this harkens back to that golden chain of salvation at the beginning, which provides the decreative ground God has foreknown you from eternity. He has predestined you. In history, he called you and justified you, and you will be glorified. That is how you can know that in the final analysis, all things work together 
for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his good purpose. And notice once, once again, to tie this all back up with grace alone, where is you in all of this? Where are you in all of this? You're the beneficiary. You're the beneficiary of Jesus having worked, of the Father having willed. You're the one that's getting lavished riches poured out upon you. All by sovereign, free grace. Paul's answer to every single concern, every single attack is not the strength and vigor of your faith, not the wholehearted commitment of your action. No, it is the absolute, sufficient, perfect work of Jesus. So, as you go through life and you have your trials and your troubles, your tribulations, remember and celebrate that the doctrine, the truth, that your salvation is by grace alone is indeed the sufficient ground for your assurance. You will never, ever be forsaken by your Father. There is nothing you can do to make him say, forget it, forget it, the adoption's off. You are his, and he is yours. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this truth. We thank you that we have assurance because of your greatness. Thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing for us such an awesome and wondrous salvation. And thank you that because salvation is by grace alone, we can have great assurance that our shortcomings and failures won't undermine it. Thank you. Grant that we would celebrate your gracious grace all the days of our lives. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.